Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Gospel of Matthew in our series on the Beatitudes this summer, uh, looking at the good life. The one thing that we all kind of long for, whatever your state of life is, wherever you are, we all on some level long for the good life. And I think Jesus has some amazing things to say about that. Now, if you're looking in your Bible and you don't have one available, you'll find at the end of the rows some blue Bibles. Feel free to take one of those and uh, uh, use those if you can. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one uh, for yourself as a gift from us. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, and today we're going to dive into the last beatitude, the eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And here's Jesus once again blowing us away with this whole idea, this counterintuitive sense of what it means to live in this life, what real goodness in life is all about. So believing God has spoken, hear the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1 with the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowd, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, 25 years ago this summer, um, Elizabeth and I uh, made a big trip up to uh, Massachusetts so, so we, I could go to seminary. We left the, the genteel southern city of Raleigh, North Carolina to head north. In, there you go. That's right, Sean. To head into uh, a place we'd never really been before, and that was a place north of Boston, Massachusetts, where I would go to seminary. Now, of course, there were some definite cultural adjustments for this southern boy in many ways. One of them, of course, was how Boston folk, folk, folks really talked funny. They pocked their kind, have it yod. Now, of course, I talk funny too. I'm from the South. I say, hey, y'all, and things like that. So that was an adjustment after time. Another thing that uh, we had to adjust to was New Englanders could be really direct in their communication. I mean, here in the South, you know, we say indirect things like bless their heart, which means, boy, that was stupid, right? But there, they'll say, well, that was stupid to your face. They were very direct in that way. After a time, I have to admit, I grew very uh, appreciative of the direct nature. But one time, there was a directness that I didn't expect. I was working part-time while in seminary in, a, in an engineering firm. And uh, I was doing some engineering and some technical work with them. And, uh, and I, I was blessed to have a boss who let me work there part-time and really was for me to let me be there. But uh, one day I was talking to one of the managers who was a very sharp guy, went to Harvard, uh, and was a good engineer. And we started talking about Christianity. He started asking me questions. And, you know, he's asking questions about the Bible. He started asking questions about what I thought about Jesus being the only way. And I told him what I thought in a very matter-of-fact way. And then all of a sudden it happened. With intensity that I didn't expect, he just came at me uh, with anger, effectively, saying, why do you believe in this stuff? while using some choice words in the process. Of course, it, 
it surprised me at first, but then again, it, it gave me a moment where I realized this is what it means to be mistreated for your faith. And uh, today, uh, we're going to get a look at what that is about here in uh, Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. When Jesus dives in and helps us understand this idea of persecution as Christians. Uh, you, usually when you get pushed back for something you believe in, you, you're really tested in many ways and you start to wonder, is this what I signed up for? But Jesus has some profound things to say. And that profound thing is, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. So in light of what Jesus has to say, let's look at the eighth and final beatitude. And we're going to have to, I'm going to have to start with a caveat here. And the caveat is this, when we talk about persecution, as I'm talking about over these next, uh, this next bit of time, it, 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 that's going to be something that many of us aren't really used to relating to. Here in the South, we live in this relatively Christianized culture. However, most of the world doesn't. Most of the world is not Christianized. And I would suggest that the genteel Christianity that you might find in Charlotte in particular, my hometown, is actually going away very quickly. We are becoming a post-Christian nation and city in many ways. Pushback on Christianity is coming and it's here. And so that begs the question, what does it mean to have the good life? When someone doesn't like you or your Christianity in particular, what does that look like? And what hope do we have when that, when that pushback comes in various forms? So let's dive in and look at this major beatitude that Jesus has given, the very last one. This is the eighth and last one. And by the way, this beatitude goes on into verses 11 and 12, in fact. Uh, we're going to deal with verse 10 today. We'll deal with verses 11 and 12 next week. Uh, but you've got to remember where we are at this point in the Beatitudes. Jesus said all these crazy things like, blessed are the poor. Jesus is talking about the good life, and he says, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus is talking about the good life, and he says, blessed are those who are hunger and thirst. And you're thinking, this doesn't sound like a good kind of life from my point of view. But Jesus is surprising us. And last week, he continued the surprise when he talked about blessed are the peacemakers. Here, Jesus praises those who make real peace in relationships when there is a conflict. Now, we would expect after that one, Jesus would come to the final beatitude, and he would say something that would be, yeah, like, yeah, that's the way it should be, a really nice beatitude. But instead, Jesus finishes the last beatitude with this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Didn't expect that. Blessed are the persecuted. We don't expect that because in our culture, in our assumptions, don't we normally assume that blessed are the popular? Don't we normally assume that with people? From middle school to the halls of our government, popularity is the currency of relational power in our time and space. And so when Jesus says this crazy thing, blessed are the persecuted, we go, what? What is he saying? Well, Clearly, Jesus is saying popularity isn't all it's cracked up to be, especially with him. And sometimes all of us have to realize that in our efforts to live the Christian life, to live in these Beatitudes, and particularly even with living with peacemaking in our lives, some things don't end up in peace. Some relationships are really broken. Sometimes 
with one person or a few people, even with entire governments, people just don't like followers of Jesus. Now, that's a hard thing to hear. But here's the crazy thing. Jesus says, in that moment, those people are blessed. Those people are living the thriving, flourishing life in God's eyes. Now, I want to take a second and shift our discussion and talk about persecution in particular because when we talk about persecution, all kind of things come to mind. We don't want to get confused and call something persecution that isn't actually persecution. Now, John Stott has a nice definition of what persecution looks like uh, and when he describes it this way. He says, persecution is simply the irreconcilable clash of two value systems. The irreconcilable clash of two value systems. It's ill treatment, hostility carried out by one person or group against one person or, or group as well. It is a very personal thing, a personal clash between real people. Now, in our world today, there are some hot spots for persecution, even as we speak. Communist countries like China are hostile to Christianity and Christians. So much so, there's a massive underground church. I don't know if you know, there are millions and millions and millions of people in an underground church meeting in secrecy in order to practice their faith. Another place, where, a series of places where you'll find persecution, of course, are in some Middle Eastern countries where you'll find fundamentalist Muslims or Sharia law. Uh, I know some pastors personally who are in a Southeast Asian country, I can't tell you, where it's actually illegal to convert to Christianity. Recently, some of you may have heard of an American pastor named Andrew Brunson, an EPC pastor, who's been held under house arrest in Turkey uh, for his faith. Believers all over the world are going through things like this. This is what persecution looks like typically in our minds. So that brings us to the question, then, what about us? What about us? Do we encounter persecution? Well, let's just be clear. We're not thrown in jail for our faith in America. But I want to qualify what persecution looks like typically from the scriptures as well as from life experience. And I use three categories to describe persecution. The first would be you have mild persecution, then you have moderate persecution, then you have severe persecution. Mild, moderate, and severe persecution. What would mild persecution look like? Well, mild persecution would be things like being misunderstood, being judged, left out of things intentionally, even experiencing intolerance and betrayal in relationships with people. Teenagers, <laughs> trying to follow Jesus in this age is tough. In our schools and in the clicky environments you have in, uh, around you. So as a result, you'll experience these things sometimes, even and especially when you're following Jesus. You will be left out you will be uh, uh, not tolerated in some circumstances. Moderate persecution. Let's talk about that for a second. Moderate persecution usually takes the form of verbal attacks uh, on what you believe or how you live. Some might mock or denigrate or, or, or even attack your Christian walk or beliefs. That's what I experienced in my own workplace back in New England with that one, one guy. 
Some may even intentionally harass you. Now, some of us who are in the work world may experience this in some way, in that you're doing your jobs and you're trying to do it with integrity. And when you're doing your jobs, you're trying to always work for the Lord first, right? The Lord is your ultimate boss, even in your job. But sometimes your companies will ask you to do things or your bosses or under the, on the side ask you to do things that are illegal or that are just plain unethical. And there you're faced with a decision. And sometimes you have to say no. And in that case, you will get pushback more often than not. I've had that experience even in my own engineering career at times. Now let's talk about severe persecution. Severe persecution takes harassment to a different level. Here people are taken to court, they're jailed, they're tortured, and even killed for their faith. And of course, this is where martyrs come to being. But let's take a moment and, and clarify why. Why are, are people persecuted and Christians persecuted and some are even killed? Well, Jesus says uh, in our text there's a particular reason why. For righteousness sake. You see that? So it's not just being persecuted, it's being persecuted for a particular reason in the eyes of Jesus, for righteousness' sake. And this is very important to understand because sometimes we can evoke the persecution language and it's, persecution really isn't going on. So when Jesus uh, uh, talks about persecution for righteousness' sake, he's trying to keep us from misapplying our sense of persecution. How can we misapply? Well, Christians sometimes misapply persecution. Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who can be jerks while using Jesus' name with something. There is such a thing as being rude and overzealous. Jesus also isn't saying, blessed are those who persecuted for lack of wisdom in communicating the gospel with someone. The cross should be offensive, not the person delivering the gospel. Nor is he saying, blessed are those who are persecuted because of a cause. <laughs> yeah, I like Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, point on this. He says, too many in our time, particularly in politics, want to slap Jesus' name on a pet project or policy, and when they don't get what they want, they call it persecution. No doubt. There are times when we can speak into politics about things like abortion, euthanasia, with great integrity, and we will get pushback. But I, shall say, I should say, beware of a persecution complex on debatable policy. So that brings us around again to what is Jesus saying and telling us by this beatitude. Well, what he's saying is this. When you live the Christian life, when you live out these beatitudes that we read earlier and walk through those and live those out in your life, and follow Jesus, you can bet 100% you're going to get pushed back in some way. It's going to happen. You will get spiritual resistance. That's a little unnerving, isn't it? I mean, when we follow Jesus and receive him, we're expecting eternal life, joy, peace, and all these things that are promised. And of course, you absolutely get those following Jesus. But this is the part that's like, feels like the fine print when you commit your life to Christ. We've well, got to keep in mind that this isn't something that we actually seek out. That is persecution. It's not something that we seek out like we seek out uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So it's actually something that happens to us. 
It's different in that kind of way as, as a beatitude. And the good news is that in our time and in our place here in America, we are blessed with freedom of religion in our country. And I got to say, as citizens, all of us should do everything we can to promote the protection of our First Amendment rights. I do think that's spot on and that's proper citizenship. The bad news, though, is that America is quickly becoming a post-Christian nation. Charles Taylor says it well, we're becoming so secularized now that Christianity is less and less the dominant religion. It is merely an option of belief among many options. So in our secularized environment, with all the options that are showing up in our time, there's going to be more resistance. Get used to it. How are you doing with that? If you're following Jesus for any amount of time and you hear what I just said, that's a hard one to swallow. But the truth is, I want to encourage you. You are not alone. You're not alone. In your struggle and the pushback you get and the ways you try to live your life or even what you believe with family or in your workplace, among your neighbors and friends, the gospel clearly tells us that Jesus himself went through every form of persecution from mild to severe. He went from mild to severe even to death on the cross. Jesus got it from, uh, with a betrayal from one of his closest friends and disciples, uh, Judas. He got it from the fickle crowds. He got pushback from the Romans who ended up crucifying him. But here's a surprise. He got it the worst in the persecution from religious people. From religious people. The Jewish authorities, like the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, were relentless with their questioning, their scheming, and finally their corrupt efforts with a kangaroo court to put Jesus to death. Jesus' presence and teaching of the gospel was a threat to their nominal, manageable religion. What's that got to do with us? Well, two applications. First, beware nominalism and the manageable religious types. They are usually the nicest people and the most violent people at the same time. Nominally religious people choose that life so they can check the box of Christianity, so that they can feel good about themselves when Jesus came into the world saying, I don't want you checking box, I want you and everything about you. All of your life is mine. See, when Jesus says things like that, that's when people want to fight back. Second application. Let's be really clear. Who is behind the persecution and even things like nominal religion? We have an adversary. His name is Satan. Persecution has its origins in the father of lives, the violent one. And just look at Job's story, look at Jesus and his temptation, or many of the demonic challenges on Jesus during his ministry. Now, I know that bringing up the language of Satan presents challenges in our time. Some in religious circles want to blame every evil thing that happens on Satan. The devil made me do it, among other things. But we believe that while Satan is behind a great deal of evil, men are just as culpable in their responsibility in sin. But there is another extreme, and it's not taking Satan seriously. 
If you're not a follower of Christ, I mean, I realize the thought of a demonic presence like Satan seems like the greatest conspiracy theory in history, right? However, here's my question. Where does evil come from? Where's its origin? Where does the Holocaust get hatched? How does genocide in Rwanda start? Where do serial killers get what they do? We believe it comes and it has its origins in an evil spiritual being who tempts men in their darkness to do violent things. When you experience persecution in mild or moderate forms, you are dealing with a real adversary, a principality and power who stirs men and groups of men to resist Christ and those who follow him. Our job is to resist the devil so that he'll flee. I got to tell you guys something. I believe that our church is experiencing a form of spiritual warfare as we speak. I am not a devil behind every problem guy. I really am not. I'm so rational, it's crazy sometimes. But I think uh, that we are running into real issues today in our church. If you take into account Satan's work in Job's life, particularly with his health issues, it is not lost on me that our associate pastor's family in the last six months has experienced a major physical health challenge. Then we've had two core families, or part of us from the very beginning experienced major health issues in that last six months as well. And now my own family has been hit with cancer in my wife. Uh, It is my opinion and the opinion of some brothers who are in church planting circles all over the nation that this is spiritual warfare. Now, whether Satan actually put the the diseases in us or not, one thing I can tell you, he certainly brings one thing to the table, that when you get sick and when you go through hard things, the temptation is intense. I can tell you that about myself. It is very intense. And Satan would have us not to follow Jesus. (laughs) I love my friend Tom Wood said it this way. He said, Dean, Satan is not a gentleman when he fights. Should we be surprised? Didn't Jesus say that we would experience these exact things in our lives when we encounter this stuff? I mean, listen to John 15, 18. It says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says this, a man who experienced like intense persecution all the time, he says this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, not might be. Persecution of mild, moderate, even severe forms will come if you are living a righteous life in Christ. So, what do you do with that? I mean, this is kind of rough stuff, right? I mean, I feel it. How do we handle this? How do we respond spiritually in Christ when people don't like us in our Christianity, when Satan doesn't like us in our Christianity? Well, here's what you do. You fight the good fight, not the worldly fight. You fight the good fight, not the worldly fight. The worldly fight would be get mad, escape. We could go on with all kinds of things. We'll talk more about that next week. But the good fight is this. You stop and you go to Jesus. 
You go to Jesus as your refuge, your stronghold, your strength, your life, the one who can sustain you when you got nothing. You go to Jesus. And not only that, you go to Jesus, and here's what happens. You see this in the Psalms with David. As you go to Jesus, you'll find that in the midst of that intense hardship with said person that you might be going at it with, even around your Christian values and beliefs, you are revealed. You get to grow. You have to deal with your stuff. Oh, I know the other person's got their stuff, but you got stuff too. There's nothing quite like uh, having the heat turned on when we are revealed. Conflict and persecution exposes our idols, especially the idol we all carry around of wanting to please other men. I think persecution is God's way of killing off that idol. Of all things, persecution is an opportunity. Remember that last week, guys? Conflict is not a bad thing. It's an opportunity for God to redeem. And it's opportunity for God to redeem you in your focus on him as your one true God. So what does that look like in daily living? How does that pan out? Well, I would suggest to you that when you face mild to severe persecution, you respond with righteousness. What a concept. If you're persecuted for righteousness, you actually respond with righteousness. You fight the good fight. Here are four brief biblical ways that you can respond to persecution when somebody is bringing the goods on you. The first is this, Matthew 13 and 1 Peter 3 say this, endure with the gospel and regard Christ as holy. We heard it read earlier, regard Christ as holy. Remember that our highest allegiance is with Jesus. And boy, I tell you, there's something about having people come at you for your Christianity that really force you to go, I have decided to follow Jesus like we sang earlier. It really forces you to that and that he has saved me. He is holy. I'm going to give my highest allegiance to him. And the result of that is you can wait on him. You can wait on him as your Lord and Savior. And here's how you wait. You use the scripture. You endure with the gospel. You ask this important question that we don't ask enough in this day, guys, and that's this. What is true? What is true according to God? When I got people accusing me, when I got people giving me a hard time, what is actually true from God's point of view given to us in Scripture? Second, 1 Thessalonians 5 and Acts 4 encourage us with two things. Go to God and the saints with your prayers. Of course, you go like, with, like David does throughout so many of the Psalms of laments. He goes straight to God and he starts praying and lamenting about the oppression that he experienced from King Saul, from his own son and the betrayal of Absalom. He goes to him and he, he just pours out his heart to the Lord. Remember, that's what we've said in the past. When you're feeling strong emotion, don't hide it from God. Bring it to God. If you're angry, if you're sad, if you're hurting, Bring it to the Lord in prayer. Not only bring it to the Lord, bring it to your believing friends. 
In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are persecuted for preaching the gospel in, the, in Jerusalem in the temple. And after they get back, you know what they do next? They go rent a movie and feel good about themselves. No, that's not what they do. This is what happened. And everybody broke out in a prayer meeting. They started praying to God and lifting him up for his holiness and his glory, for his sovereignty. They lifted him up. Don't do this alone. Pray without ceasing and pray together. Third quick one. Here we go. Ephesians 6 says this. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Take up the full armor of God so you can resist the devil's schemes. Folks, we are at war. And we need to use our relationship with the Lord and his spiritual resources to gird up for the fight. You've got to be strong in the Lord. Let me highlight that for a second. Some of us are going, sometimes, man, when, I, when somebody says something with words that are really hurtful about my walk with Jesus or, or what I believe, man, it's just hard to kind of recover from that. I feel weak. I don't, I don't feel like fighting. And I'm like, exactly. That's what you bring to the Lord. You be strong in the Lord, not yourself. You don't buck up yourself. You go to the Lord and say, I don't have it in me, Lord. You need to give me the Holy Spirit so that I can move forward and fight the good fight for you. Fourth and finally, and here's the cultural countercultural shocker. While we go to war for Jesus, in the world that we live in, in all the relationships we are, Jesus says this amazing thing in Matthew 5 and 1 Peter 3. This is what he says. You ready? You go to war by doing this. Love your enemies, pray for them, and do good to them. What? Now, Dean Falker, the street fighter in the flesh, would say, you take me out, I'm going to take you out. But Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm your vindicator. I'm your Lord. I'm the one who will take care of you in all of this. Romans 12 Respond to evil with good, and it will, he- it will put heaping coals on your enemies, a person. So let me ask the bigger question. Why do all this? Why, why endure? Why pray? Why love your enemies? Why rely on the gospel? What's true? Well, the amazing thing about following Jesus with righteousness is this. Even when the heat is coming in various forms of persecution, this happens. We have a promise. We have a promise. Did you hear the promise? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have God himself for you as your king, your ruler, master of every circumstance and protector. You have the God of the universe who created quasars protecting you. This is the same promise you find in blessed are the poor. And the implication is this. Even as we go through intentional pushback from Satan and hostile people on occasion, we're going to feel poor, like this is too much. But we can be sure of this. God and Christ is our warrior king. He is our warrior king. Oh, we like to think of Jesus as meek and mild and kind, and he is every bit of that. But he is also a warrior. 
He's a fighter in a holy way, and he'll fight for you. There are things that go on in the spiritual realm that we cannot see, but you got to know that Jesus is fighting for you, even as we speak at the right hand of God the Father. And he could do that because he beat Satan 2,000 years ago on the cross or with the resurrection. God is sovereign, and he's way more committed to your protection than you would ever believe. And the beautiful thing about Christianity that I love that no other religion can say is that our God allows suffering but is sovereign over it, and yet our God is the only one who says, I'm here with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. I will be with you. Our God is the only one who says that. God loves you deeply. And he will sustain you when people really don't like you or your faith for some reason. He's the king. And his kingdom is here. And Jesus will fight for you as our one great warrior king. So that begs the correct question. What's the last thing we can do? Well, I want to give you an illustration. An illustration that I hope will help you understand what our job is in light of all the things I've told you to do today. When somebody brings the goods against you for your faith in Christ and for the way you live in Christ. One of my favorite, I'm a guy, okay? One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. There you go. And so... This is Mel Gibson's guy movie that's all about battles and love and, of course, great causes like freedom. <laughs> but in the middle of the movie, there's a scene where William Wallace gathers the Scottish troops to fight against the English at Stirling Bridge. This actually happened, just so you know, a real battle happened in 1297 in that same way. Wallace gathers this ragtag group of Scottish troops and puts them on a line. On the other end of the field of, of battle is another line with a lot more uh, English troops who are much more well-equipped. And even more, they have a cavalry. They have horses, war horses, equipped to take on what was a tiny army that had very few horses to take them on. So as the war began, as the battle began... You can imagine this line of troops, the Scottish troops lining up. And on the other end come the war horses. They send them first. Here comes the cavalry with these giant uh, poles to come at the Scottish troops with. And so here they come. They start coming at them. And William Wallace says this interesting thing. He says, hold the line. They keep coming. They're building up a little steam. <laughs> William Wallace says, hold. They're getting closer and closer, and William Wallace says, hold. They're coming right at him. They're right up on him, and William Wallace says, hold. And then, right as they came up to the line of the Scotsmen, the Scotsmen pull up these giant poles and impale all of the horses and the cavalry and take them down. In the process, the rest of the Scottish troops overrun the cavalry and start taking on the rest of the army the English lose that day. But it all started when Wallace, their great commander on the field, said, Hold! Hold the line. Jesus held it for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you today as a people... Who, aren't, who don't want to fight, but who you call us to be warriors with you. But we thank you that you're the great warrior. And all of us here come today 
with different things in our lives around relationships. A few of us may even have some people who are hostile in our life towards us. I pray that you give us the strength to hold the line and to love like you did. I pray you give us as a body strength to hold the line with you and to believe the gospel in this time in our life as we're building a new church, to hold the line and follow you as our warrior king. Glory to you, Lord Christ. You held the line for us 2,000 years ago. You're holding it for us today at the right hand of the Father right now. We pray you give us courage. In Jesus' name, amen.